At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson. And on this edition, we're going to talk about a really challenging issue and, and uh, quite frankly, an unfortunate issue that I wish that we did not have to talk about. I am uh, privileged to have uh, Philip Bethencourt, the Executive Vice President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, joining me. And Philip has taken the lead on uh, addressing this issue and then also coming up with uh, some proposals as to how churches can deal with this. Philip, Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Hey, uh, this is a tough issue, and as I uh, just talk about the, the two terms, sexual abuse and the church, it's unfortunate that we have to use those terms in the same sentence. Um, we, live in a, we live in a culture that uh, has very few moral boundaries, if you will, a sexually libertine culture. And this appears to have impacted the church, um, where even the boundaries have shifted inside the church. And of course, the, the news story out of Fort Worth, Texas, broke earlier in the year that sh uh, showed that there have been 400 cases of sexual abuse that have really been kept uh, under, under wraps. They've not come to light until the story, but over about a 20-year time period, as I understand it. And uh, Philip, when you heard that news and when you saw that story broke, what went through your mind? Well, it's devastating. Unfortunately, it's not entirely surprising, and that's because we know our Bible, Richard. We know that uh, sexual sin and abuses of authority and power are as old as the Garden of Eden itself, and there's sexual brokenness and that abuse of authority that happens throughout the Bible and throughout the history of humanity. And what we're seeing now is a reckoning within the Southern Baptist Convention on this issue, and that's, that's the new and devastating part of it. Uh, not that uh, we're suggesting that this wasn't an issue previously, but this, a spotlight is being put on this that wasn't there previously. And so what, when you think about what's happened with us, uh, you had an incident come up last summer where one of our presidents of our seminary was dismissed over mishandling this, and then, as you mentioned, the Houston Chronicle expose addressing this issue really accentuated the focus on it. I think what's really alarming is that the Southern Baptist Convention is uh, the largest evangelical denomination in the country. Uh, most are known for being very conservative when it comes to teaching uh, what God's Word says and conservative when it comes to sexual ethics. And to have something like this come to light that things have been going on behind the scenes uh, at a number of churches all across the country uh, really was a shock to many people. Yeah, what, and what the Me Too moment has shown over the last two years is that uh, this particular uh, sin and crime knows no theological or moral boundaries. You see it from the libertine Hollywood circles to the theology of the Catholic Church to Southern Baptist to more mainline and liberal denominations. It, it crosses every boundary. And that's because it's a root issue of the heart. When you're talking about abuse of power and abuse of sexual authority, those issues will come up no matter what situation you find yourselves in, which means for us as Southern Baptists, we need to look internally at what that means for us as a denomination. 
Philip, I was moved when I listened to an NPR story earlier this year, and of course the president of the ERLC was uh, interviewed, but they had a, a young woman who uh, was part of an SBC church uh, that they interviewed. She was a, a teenager in her junior high years, and she was uh, uh, sexually exploited by a, uh, a youth pastor. And as I listened to her story and could hear the angst in her voice, uh, in the tears as well, I was moved because this isn't theoretical. We're not just talking about some issue that's out there, or some theoretical moral boundaries, but we're finding that when moral boundaries are breached, it impacts real people. No question. And, uh, and, and so as I was thinking, one of the things that she said was, uh, she was, it was a very, very uh, tough interview to listen to, but uh, one that I'm, I'm glad that she shared her story. Uh, but I was thinking, she, she, she shared that she will never, ever step foot in the Southern Baptist Church again. And I'm curious, as when that story broke, uh, were you hearing from people across the country? What kind of response were you hearing? And what were people saying? Yeah, you know, you talk about the scope of the problem. The best statistics we have suggest that one in four women and one in six men will experience abuse or assault at some point in their life. And so it's a pervasive issue, and it's not just statistics. There's st stories behind each one of them, and that's exactly why last summer we took the step of proposing and starting our sexual abuse advisory group that our president, J.D. Greer, commissioned and that the ERLC is partnering with. One of the things that we've done, Richard, over the last nine months in connection with that has been to have conversations with uh, not only abuse advocates, but most importantly, survivors, and to listen to their stories, to learn from them, and to hear the pain that they've experienced just like this that you're describing from the NPR interview. So do you have groups at the, at the state level, or is this something at the national level that's available to churches that have might, might have suffered through a sexual abuse scandal, or parents that might have had a child that was abused? Is this something uh, local level, state? National? Yeah, we're working at every level of Southern Baptist life. And part of, part of what we try to do is take this in a three-stage process, the first of which has been a, uh, a, a period of discernment to understand the issue, to better capture what's going on, and to hear survivors' stories so that when we're trying to think through solutions, we don't bypass sorrow on the way to those solutions. We spend that time in lament. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm with Philip, Philip Bethencourt, uh, Vice President of the uh, Executive Vice President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. We're talking about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. Stay tuned, and we'll be back in just a minute. Growing up as a child, who did you turn to whenever you had a crisis? Who was your source of strength? Who held you in the darkest situations and became your beacon of light? Most of us will recall the love of our parents, our grandparents, our family. But the harsh reality today is that there are many who face the dark places of life totally alone. Since 1869, the mission and the ministry of Sunrise Children's Services has been to help children in crisis. That need grows every day in Kentucky. Everyone with a passion for children can join us in giving hope to children in need. To learn more, just visit sunrise.org or call 1-800-456-1386. Matthew 25:40 tells us, The king will reply, 
Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Now's the time to be a child's source of strength. Come help us at Sunrise Children's Services. Hi, this is Richard Nelson with the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, and I want to thank you for listening to the Commonwealth Matters. Our goal is to help you better understand the important issues of the day, the issues of life, marriage, and religious liberty. But that isn't all we do. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is working to educate legislators and policymakers about these bedrock values so they can defend them while serving in Frankfurt. We are in regular conversations with state leaders on both sides of the aisle, encouraging them to uphold what Kentuckians like you value. But we need your help. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit group that only exists by the grace of God and the generosity of its donors. Would you consider a donation today to the Commonwealth Policy Foundation so that our work might continue? Please visit our website at commonwealthpolicyfoundation.org. There you'll find some easy ways you can help us accomplish this important work. Again, go to CommonwealthPolicyFoundation.org and consider a gift today. And thanks in advance for any help you can offer. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson. I'm here with Philip Bethencourt. Executive Vice President of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and we're talking about a very difficult topic, and that's of a story that broke earlier this year about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And Philip, sexual abuse on its own is tough to talk about, but when you have sexual abuse going on inside the church where you have trusted spiritual leaders who uh, are, are supposed to counsel and, and walk with people in their challenges and difficulties in life and to uh, provide spiritual formation and spiritual leadership. Uh, but when you have that breach of trust, that, that trust has been breached, uh, it's, it's extremely uh, difficult to overcome. Here's what uh, Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer said, how we as a convention of churches care for abuse victims and protect against vile predators says something about what we believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our churches should be a refuge for the hurting and a safe haven for the oppressed. I think that uh, J.D. was was on point in what he was saying, but I, I have to imagine that many people are wondering, well, that's all well and good, and it's good to apologize. I think there's a time for apology. Uh, but what practically is being done to... To, to address this and to equip churches to put safeguards in place to keep this from happening again. Um, in the previous segment, you had mentioned uh, a position paper or a policy paper that you put out. Let's talk about that. Yeah, what, what we've done over the last nine months is we have launched a sexual abuse advisory group that is tasked with working with Southern Baptist partners and people beyond the SBC to look at this issue in a fresh way. And it's moving through three phases. I mentioned in the last segment our assessment phase where we're listening and learning. Right now we're in the development phase where we're trying to produce resources, recommendations, strategies to help churches 
strengthen themselves. And then coming in June of 2019 at our SBC annual meeting in Birmingham, we will initiate our launch phase, which will be our effort to saturate the Southern Baptist Convention with embracing some of these recommendations and resources. And what we're trying to do is we're, we're saying to every church in the SBC, we want you to do three things when it comes to abuse. The first is we want you to share about abuse. We want to build awareness and education and equipping to help churches and, and Christians understand the issue in light of the Bible and the cultural moment we live in. The second is we want you to care. So we want you to be taking strides to provide uh, the type of care and ministry and response when abuse situations occur that would honor the Lord and reflect the gospel picture that J.D. mentioned in that quote. And then the third is we want churches to prepare. We want them to take proactive steps uh, to prevent abuse before it happens by setting up good policies and procedure, vetting personnel effectively, and doing the types of things that they can to ensure that our churches will be the types of places that are both safe for survivors and safe from abuse. Have you been hearing from the public about concerns for uh, allowing their children, parents allowing their children into a, a youth group or even into a nursery? Is this something you're hearing more of after this news story? Well, broke? I think everyone's attention is fixed on this issue because of the Me Too moment that we're in. Uh, you're hearing about it in the news cycle. You're seeing it play out in local congregations and uh, youth athletics and other settings. I think there's an ele- a vigilance on this issue uh, that wasn't always there in the past, and rightfully so. And what that means for churches is we have the unique opportunity uh, to care well for the victims that have been through this and seek to minister to them, but also uh, to reshape the next generation of how we address this to ensure that we're doing all that we can to protect the most vulnerable among us, especially the children who may be most susceptible to something like this. Yeah, and I applaud your efforts, by the way. Um, I, I hope it's not coming across that I'm casting any blame on the SBC. Of course, we're just talking about what's happening and uh, it, it is sad, though, whether it's the SBC or any other denomination that's dealing with sexual abuse, it's, it's uh, particularly uh, grievous because you're talking about people that have entrusted themselves to the, to the care of spiritual leaders. One of the challenges we face is that our culture continues to push against moral boundaries when it comes to human sexuality. Philip, we're, we're dealing with the idea today that uh, men who identify as women should be affirmed in that choice, or women who identify as men should be inf- affirmed. Uh, no moral boundaries, no ethical boundaries, if you will, when it comes to transgender. At the same time, we know that when human beings uh, breach those moral boundaries, those, those sexual ethical boundaries, people are hurt. Uh, whether it's a transgender individual that regrets having a sex reassignment surgery, or whether it's somebody that is pursuing uh, uh, sexual uh, choices outside of covenant marriage as believers. We believe that God has created sex, which is a gift, and, that, and, and we should affirm that, that it is a good gift from our Creator, but it's, but it's meant to take place within the confines of covenant marriage, and that sounds so, what, 1950s, right? <laughs> we're, like we're, we're being the Puritans of the 21st century, and I'm okay with that. I've been called worse, I guess. But there's these two dynamics taking place where there are few moral, if any, moral boundaries in our culture, and yet we're seeing people hurt uh, who've been exploited, who've been abused. Uh, we're in the Me Too movement. How does the church 
enter back into that conversation uh, with the stigma against us as believers. Well, you're just Puritans and you're prudish, and 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 yet the reality is is uh, we have people, refugees, if you will, from the sexual revolution coming into our churches. How do you? How do you balance that, or how do we make sense of this moment that we're in? Yeah, God, God's Word gives us His good design for marriage, family, and sexuality. And part of what our calling is as the church is to live that out, even in a cultural moment where that's not always supported and affirmed. And it's interesting you frame the question this way, because you almost have two opposing things happening at the same time. On the one hand, you have a cultural rejection of the church because of our commitment to biblical principles when it comes to marriage, family, and sexuality. In other words, when we're walking in a way God's designed for us, that is leading to rejection by some. But on the other hand, you see the church at times rejecting God's design for protecting the vulnerable and resisting abuse and other things that are having the same secondary effect of pushing people away from the church. And so it's not just what we stand for biblically when it comes to marriage and sexuality that's pushed some away, but at the same time what we fail to stand for Mm -hmm. in terms of protecting the vulnerable that's had a similar effect. So when you say vulnerable, I want to push into this a little bit. Are you talking about the vulnerable apart from those who've been sexually exploited? No, I'm I'm saying vulnerable people are often the most likely to be exploited, whether that's children or uh, women or men that are in crisis situations. Uh, They're often the ones that a predator will look at. And and the, the easiest way to think about it is in the same way that a predatory animal will look at a herd and try to find the weakest and most vulnerable there because they're the easiest targets. So too, sexual predators often do the same thing with looking for the targets that they'll pursue for sexual abuse or assault. I understand. So, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the the terms that Scripture uses for pastors and, and leaders in the church is that they are shepherds. And uh, one thing a shepherd does is they keep out wolves. They protect their congregation from uh, those who would prey on them. I would take a step further and say that uh, part of the role of the church is to uh, to, to warn, uh, publicly warn, when, they, when leaders see something that would harm society, the vulnerable even outside the church, the vulnerable uh, in public, the church has an obligation to speak to these issues. And I think there's been a reluctance in the past. My observation is that there's been a fear or reluctance to speak to culture and to speak of predatory practices for whatever reasons. And uh, we're gonna need to take a break, but I want us to come back after the break and talk about that. What is the role of, of pastors and leaders in the church to to speak to these issues in the culture? And then, and then how do they go about doing that? At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to The Commonwealth Matters. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm your host, Richard Nelson. I'm here with Philip Bethencourt, and we are talking about sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. And 
Philip, um, one of my observations in engaging social issues in the public arena is that uh, uh, I see a reluctance uh, from many pastors and many churches to speak to the issues of the day, to speak to what's going on in culture. And uh, I guess I just want to put this in your core. Where Does the church have a role to speak to morality, to speak to what's going on in the public arena, to speak to politics? Absolutely. I mean, the Bible lays out very clearly that one of the key callings of the Christian and, and especially Christian leaders is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And part of what that means in the public square is casting a vision for God's design for the world and what that looks like in the cultural and political moment we live in. And that has application in a wide variety of areas, in, uh, ranging from things like uh, standing for life, uh, advocating for marriage and family, uh, standing up for religious freedom, and also for protecting the vulnerable, including in areas like what we're talking about today related to sexual abuse. So would, the, would pastors have an obligation? Let's say they see uh, something happening in a legislature. They see bad legislation, that uh, whatever the issue, but it could potentially impact the culture in a negative way. It could potentially, potentially impact their congregation in a negative way. What responsibility or what would you say to that pastor who's a little bit reluctant to, to speak to that issue? Maybe he hasn't uh, spoken to social issues or moral issues as they're in the culture. Uh, how, would, how would that pass? Where would he begin if he's not been speaking on these issues before? And uh, so we're in the Me Too movement. Let me try to set the, unpack this a little better for you. We see where there's a culture, it started in Hollywood, but it's throughout society where you have powerful men that have abused their authority and abused their power to take advantage of women. Does a church, should a pastor speak to that? Or how, and then how should he speak to that? Yeah, the, what you're describing is taking the Bible and helping people to apply it to everyday life. When I think about what we're doing at the ERLC, that really is the best summary I can give you of our mission. It's, it's to equip Christians to apply the gospel to everyday life. What you're yeah. describing is a reluctance or a hesitation by some pastors and leaders to apply the gospel in these difficult areas. And what I would say in terms of what steps could they take is, let's teach our people the Bible. Let's engage yeah. in discipleship. Yeah. You, the people in, in your congregation are watching the news, they're listening to these issues, they're talking to friends, they're asking the questions, and they're searching for answers, and they're either going to find it from you your, and the church leaders that God has given to shepherd them well, or they're going to look for those answers somewhere else. And so we have the opportunity, especially when it comes to uh, the abuse of power and authority that often uh, is bound up with the subject of abuse, of showing that that's contrary to what God's design is and pointing people to a better way. I was involved with a town meeting uh, in uh, West Kentucky where we talked about a similar issue. It dealt with uh, actually a sexual orientation ordinance, and uh, it was a town meeting we held at a church, and word got out that we were holding this town meeting. I would have held it anywhere, but the, those who were opposed to this and to our position implied that, well, it's the churches and it's their kind of narrow view and it's not really a town meeting, it's just for the church people. And I think along these lines you hear a criticism, whether for, for pastors or Christians that do speak to these issues, they'll say, well, that, that's your biblical view or that's your spiritual perspective, just keep that to church. Don't enter the public arena. And share that with us. Otherwise, you're imposing your values, imposing your perspective. Do you 
How do you respond to that? That'd be the same as telling somebody in your state you can be a Kentucky Wildcat or Louisville Cardinal fan, but only at home and when you're in the Yum Center or Rupp Arena. <laughs> that you can't wear those <laughs> colors good. out there in everyday life and, and exhibit that. That wouldn't make any sense, right? Because yeah, yeah. that's bound up in your identity, who you are, yeah. what's important to you as a person. How much more is that true when it comes to your spiritual convictions and what those mean for issues in the public square? Yeah. What What we're saying is that these are issues that are not confined to your personal beliefs or your home or your congregation. They're things that have application in every aspect of life. That's good because the listeners can identify with uh, UK and U of L basketball. Right. But that's a really great, uh, great analogy. Sure. And uh, I think as Christians, though, too, Bible believing Christians who take the Word of God seriously, it comes down to a matter of commitment. Do I believe in this, and am I committed to what God is saying? And and when you have that high commitment level, you cannot but help to take those beliefs with you wherever you go. And it should shape how you think about the issues. It should shape the conversations that we're involved with. And uh, it's challenging, though, because we live in a hostile world of very secular culture that is pu- continually pushing against the Christian. The, 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 the secular uh, worldview would push against those who bring a spiritual perspective, uh, eternal truths into the conversations, I want to, which leads me to a statement that Russell Moore said, very strong statement in light of the the news breaking out of Texas earlier this year. He said this, sexual assault and sexual abuse are satanic to the core, and churches should be the ones leading the way when it comes to protecting the vulnerable from predators. Uh, Philip, we don't hear a whole lot about Satan. We don't hear a whole lot about spiritual warfare or spiritual battles, but here uh, Dr. Moore just lays it out there that this is satanic, something that's happening in the churches where wolves have infiltrated into the congregations and they're taking advantage of the vulnerable. What do you say to those who say, that's just crazy, that we're the spiritual war and the devil? And um, where, do you, where do we go with that? Yeah, hey, you're talking to a guy that did his entire dissertation at Southern Seminary in Louisville on the subject of spiritual warfare. So I believe um, that very strongly. And yeah. Uh, honestly, as we've worked on this issue, Richard, over the last nine months, I've sensed personally a level of spiritual warfare amongst our team that I've experienced in very few other settings outside of working on pro-life issues. And it's because wow. Satan hates when the church takes the, takes the issue of sexual abuse seriously, because uh, abuse mm. of authority and power using sexuality in these inappropriate ways are things that reflect the heart of Satan and yeah. are contrary to the heart of the gospel. And part of what we want to do as churches is to stand for what the Scripture is teaching us and protecting those who are in our congregations and our communities. So what I'm hearing then in uh, relation to that is pastors that do take a stand and speak to this issue and begin to equip their congregation to be prepared to protect themselves against sexual abuse they could expect to face spiritual attacks as well. They can, and perhaps more importantly, you need to understand the effects this can have on the victims who have experienced it. So often abuse has long-term mental health and spiritual implications, and part of what it looks like to care well for the abused is to understand the spiritual battle that they've been through both in that moment and how that's affected them after the fact and provide the uh, refuge and comfort that they're looking for that they haven't found in the church in the past. I'm, I'm glad you got back to those who've been abused because this is a reality in not just SBC churches, but in many churches where uh, people have been abused and exploited. And as much as our heart goes out to them, and, and rightly so, 
we should be willing to minister, to uh, be the person to listen to them, to be the shoulder to cry on, to, to hold their hand and to walk through them with this, to get them appropriate counsel is needed. This is something where the body of Christ truly is a, it's a body. We're together in this. And when you see a hurting member, uh, we're to, to help bear their burdens. We're, we're there to hold, hold their hand and to be that shoulder to cry on. And uh, Philip Bethencourt, I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us here on the Commonwealth Matters. God bless you and God Thank bless you. the work of the RLC. Appreciate it.